Welcome to Thyroid Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Marcia Brose to obtain an update for medical oncologists on this unique cancer, and she began her conversation by commenting on an issue that's not widely appreciated, namely the potential long-term side effects of the most common systemic therapy for this tumor, radioactive iodine. Iodine is taken up primarily in the thyroid, but there's some other tissues that take it up, primarily the salivary glands and even the lacrimal ducts. So what happens to some of these patients who've had two or three rounds trying to get rid of maybe little nodules that are iodine avid in their lungs is that they will actually have dry mouth. They're no longer having a lot of saliva anymore. And sometimes they have excessive tearing related to the fact that the lacrimal duct has now gotten scarred down. So that is not uncommon for me to see patients later on in their tearing. So what's the pathophysiology of the lacrimal duct? It's just that the epithelial cells take up iodine, and when you take up radioactive iodine, it hurts the lacrimal duct, which is a very small, small, small duct. Interesting. It doesn't take much. And how symptomatic can these patients be? They can be pretty symptomatic. Probably by the time I see advanced patients who've had several rounds, they'll almost all complain of it. They don't like it. They'll often have to suck on candies, drink water all the time just to keep their mouth wet. How about the lacrimal duct? How often do you need stints? They don't usually treat them. I mean, most people just go on and just have some tearing in their eyes, and it's not really, that's not such a big problem. It's just good to know if you're assessing somebody's emotional behavior and you actually see that they're tearing, you might want to know that. And so they often will have had several rounds. But the other problem with thyroid cancer is following it. So these patients will have been followed in a community setting. They'll have had blood tests regularly to see if their thyroglobulin goes up. And then maybe yearly or so, they'll have had an iodine uptake scan. And while historically iodine uptake was a great way to detect disease, as people get farther and farther out and their maybe microscopic disease that's still around starts to progress, what happens is, is that it de-differentiates and those cells actually lose the ability to take up iodine. And that has two effects. One, of course, you lose your ability to detect it using an iodine scan. And at the same time, you also lose the ability to treat it with iodine. So the iodine becomes less effective. What do we know about some of the pathways that are involved as the patients, you know, are diagnosed and then develop iodine-insensitive disease? What are some of the pathways? Mm -hmm. It's being worked out, I'll say that. So we know for a fact that the TSH receptor gets downregulated. We know that the sodium iodine symporter, which is also called NIS, N-I-S, for short, is also downregulated. And there's some research that says that it's related to downregulation on the promoters of those genes that might be related to methylation and things like that. And that will become an issue later because some of the agents that are being tested actually target the methylation pattern in these cells. Yeah, I'm learning about epigenetics. Is that Yes, the, epigenetics all the way. A, that's yes. about as good as I can get on that one. Well, you're right on. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that I forgot to mention is that if a patient has, at the time of their original surgery, there are some very clear prognostic signs that they would look for. So if they have evidence of vascular invasion or lympho invasion or spread through the capsule, and especially if they have lymph nodes involved, they are going to be much more higher risk for having it stay around. And in patients who really have a presence of lymph nodes, even one or two at the original thyroidectomy that are positive, it's often recommended at some point that they undergo a full lymph node dissection, not unlike somebody who's had breast cancer. They'll have their lymph nodes taken out, the same thing for the neck disease. And that can actually really help with recurrence. 
somebody who has really bad recurrence over and over again historically might have gotten external beam radiation to their neck as well. But that has a lot of morbidity with it. It really scars down the entire neck. Honestly, the necks of these people are incredibly hard. And it can be disfiguring as well. But then it also has side effects such as, you know, when you irradiate the carotid arteries, they might be more likely to get clots and you could lead to ventral strokes and things. So external beam radiation is sort of used only as needed for somebody who has really recurrent disease, maybe keeps coming back. Uh, In terms of patients sort of moving through this phase, what are the numbers in terms of the different subtypes? So if we take all comers with thyroid cancer just from the get-go, the majority of those patients are going to be in the differentiated category. Those subtypes are follicular, herthal cell, which is thought to be related to follicular and papillary thyroid cancer. A small number of them will actually be medullary thyroid cancers. And remember, those are from a whole different cell. Instead of those being from the epithelial cell, they'll actually be from the C cells, which are involved with the regulation of calcitonin. And then you also have anaplastic thyroid cancer, or poorly differentiated anaplastic, but Sometimes those can evolve out of an epithelial cancer that like a papillary follicular after many years can evolve into a poorly differentiated or anaplastic. But there's some people right from the get-go that have anaplastic cancer. And that really is often felt to be, by many of us, really almost a separate disease. It's incredibly aggressive. And now I get a lot of phone calls from across the country, and people are talking to me about these patients that they have. And as soon as one of them says, I can't believe how fast this thing is growing, that in my mind is a definition of anaplastic. I don't need to see the pathology report. And about how many cases a year in the United States are seen of an anaplastic? Very few. It's extremely rare. I actually don't have the exact numbers. I think the endocrinologists probably have more of them, but it's much more rare. And I get referred maybe, I probably will get up till 10, but that's a lot, and that's because I'm getting a lot of referrals. So again, getting back to this issue, what's happened before the patient gets to an oncologist? I guess then there's a period where the patient's followed and the tumor markers are being observed. Yeah, so they go on for quite some time. And as I said, one of the things that historically people were just followed by the iodine scans. But since what happened is that with the anaplastic, you lose the ability to take up iodine, these people can start developing disease. Not all of them. Many of them will have been cured. So the majority, 75% of the people who get thyroid cancer initially, will actually have very long-term survivals and will be essentially cured early on. Maybe only 25% of them will actually have stage 3 and stage 4 disease. And those are the people where it keeps coming back and coming back and spreading to outer areas such as the lungs or the bones, which is the primary two sites of spread. And what will happen is, is that They'll go through, and as some of my colleagues, Mike Tuttle at Memorial likes to say, is he spot cures them. He's an endocrinologist. And if they have a spot in their bones, they'll irradiate it. And if they have a spot in their neck, they'll take it out and irradiate it. And if they have a spot somewhere else, they'll irradiate it. And they can do that for 10, 15 years. Some of my patients have had thyroid cancer for over 30 years. But what ends up Metastatic disease? Yeah, metastatic disease. So it's a slow grower. And the way the endocrinologists describe it is it's a slow grower. It grows every time, but it may not grow a lot. So unlike, you know, liver cancer, those other cancers that grow very quickly, this grows, but it grows at a slower pace. And that's part of also why people weren't running to the oncologist previously because they have a very good quality of life. Many times they might have miliary spread to the lungs. They might have thousands of nodules and they have a totally fine quality of life. So they'll have been managed like that for quite some time, maybe having little spots fixed here and there. And at some point, the disease starts picking up the pace. And there was a very important paper that came out in 2006. Rich Robbins, who was at that time at Memorial Sloan Kettering, 
did it with Mike Tuttle, where they actually looked at PET scan. So PET scan is relatively new in the market of the endocrinology. I mean, it's been around for a while, but it really is indicated now for these patients who have advanced disease. And the reason for that is, is that as they lose their ability to take up iodine, they start taking up the FDG glucose. And because of that, they become PET positive. And the point of that is, is that if you were to do an iodine scan and it was not to come back positive, that could mean two things. Either you don't have any disease or you have disease and it's just not avid for iodine anymore. But PET scans really help you with that because once they actually develop PET positive disease, you see it for the rest of their course. And it also is very helpful because it actually, there's some now good prognostic markers. We know that people who have PET positive disease, that their median you know, length of survival at that point is going to be in the three-year range, maybe at most is five years as far as the range goes. Some of them might hang around a little longer, some less. But we know that that PET positivity actually immediately identifies a metastatic patient as starting to be in kind of a higher risk category where we're going to start thinking about what else could we do for them. I know a lot of novel biologics are being looked at, and in a way, it kind of reminds me a little bit of prostate cancer, where you have a period of time where you really don't have clinical disease, markers, PET scans, whatever. Is there any discussion about bringing phase one or two studies in earlier, just since the agents maybe aren't going to cause that much symptoms? I think we're working on that. So there are going to be more and more studies. So the first test, actually, which is the phase we're in right now, is finding out what is available. So before you start thinking about bringing things earlier, you have to find out what are the agents that are going to be available. And that's really where we're at right now. So there have been a lot of phase two studies in the last few years that have looked at different agents. And we've been studying one called serafinib, which is Nexavar, recently approved both for renal cancer and hepatocellular cancer. But there's several other agents sort of in that class of the kinase inhibitors, including sunitinib that's been also studied. AMG706 is another kinase inhibitor from Amgen. And exitinib is another Pfizer drug. All of these ones seem to have activity. And so now we actually know we've got a class of drugs that are going to be important for these patients. And actually, they can do quite well. Depending on the agent, they'll have different side effect profiles. And it takes a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, but significant finesse to manage patients to make sure. Because remember now, we're taking somebody who's totally fine, maybe playing golf every day. And we want to make sure that we actually improve their, maybe their survival, their quality of life. But we don't want to knock them down so much that it's not worth it. And so that's the beauty of these drugs is this class of drugs tends to be much better tolerated. And I think oncologists are getting a lot of experience, renal cell, et cetera, with these types of agents and seeing that although it seems like from a quality life point of view, a lot less issues than with cytotoxic chemotherapy, but yet not inconsequential side effects. Yeah, not inconsequential at all. And in fact, I went to a recent meeting with the other people who were studying Nexavar, Serafinib, and I think actually some of the side effects we get with the thyroid patients is a little bit more than the renal patients. And I'm not really sure why that is, but it seems like the side effects are going to be partly related to the drug and also related to the tumor cells that are getting laced, and that there is somewhat of a disease-specific profile that you're going to get. And these patients can have a rough time, but what I try to tell my patients is, is that The most important thing is that you have the long view. If you can get over the hump and you can get used to the agent and you can take the agent and with all of the different caveats that we can do to make it easier, but you can get over the first four to six months, often they get back to a place where their quality of life is 80% of what it was before, even 90%. And when you add the fact that their tumors has shrunk 70%, that often is a reason to get through a few months of not so nice times. 
And I want to tease out a little bit more some of the details in terms of, you know, what you see with these patients and what's been seen in the studies. But maybe we could backtrack a little bit and talk about some of the pathways that are being looked at in thyroid cancer, where there's a sort of connect up between the novel agent and the pathway. So part of the reason why we even got involved with using some of these agents has to do with the genetics. So when I was actually in training, I was working on the melanoma and the renal patients because we knew that the melanoma had BRAF mutations. And so the BRAF mutations, which is in the proliferative pathway underneath RAS and leads to downstream activation of MEK and ERK, these pathways have to do with proliferation, and they were already known to be mutated in melanoma. And the reason why serafinib was interesting particularly was that it was only one of the kinase inhibitors that actually blocked RAF. And that was part of the reason why we were interested in it for those tumors. But then when we wanted to study thyroid cancer and when I wanted to put on an agent there, it was a very good candidate because, as it turns out, thyroid cancer also has a very high number of BRAF mutations, primarily in the epithelial and the papillary. But RAS is also mutated. It's the same pathway. There are also RAS mutations. So if you look at the epithelial tumors that have a lot of RAS and RAF mutations, these are pathways that are blocked by inhibiting BRAF. The other nice thing about it, which is why I like it, and it's almost like a two-hit molecule from one drug, is that it also inhibits VEGFR2. And VEGFR2 has recently been shown to actually exist on tumor cells in the thyroid, but it actually is the main receptor on the surface of the endothelial cells. And so tumors that are highly vascular are going to get really affected by this drug because you're now actually affecting the blood vessels that feed the tumor. And I think a lot of people feel that that's probably the main mechanism for, say, serafinib's activity in renal cell cancer because that's a vascular tumor. Now, is the thinking that these agents are working against normal stroma or the tumor cells or both? It's possible they're working against the tumor cells because while they might mainly hit VEGFR2 and other things, there are many, many kinases. None of these agents hit just one or two. They tend to hit a bouquet of several kinases, and those are going to likely affect the tumor cells as well. Right now, the primary mechanism, though, is felt to be anti-endothelial, so angiogenesis is what's being targeted. And those are stroma. I mean, if you think of the vascular cells as being stroma, they're not the cytoskeleton-type cells, but they're actually part of the cells outside of the tumors. You know, this conversation has reminded me of an interview I did recently. We just started a melanoma series, and I interviewed your colleague, Keith Flaherty, and I know you've published oh, right. with him together. And, you know, he said, like, BRAF, and I'm like, what is it? I don't think it's actually on the oncologist sort of radar yet. Right. But now it looks like these two tumors in particular, that's an issue? Well, it's a very, very exciting thing because... You know, I'll give you a little bit of the history of BRAF then. So there was a big effort in the Sanger Center in England to do a big genome-wide sequencing effort. And they decided to focus first on the kinases because they were also very tractable targets for the drug industry and also for a place where we could actually start hitting tumors. And melanoma, as you know, had almost no treatments whatsoever. And when they found out that a large number, we're talking like 65% of melanomas, harbored this mutation in this kinase, it was very exciting because if you actually know what's causing the tumor and you can knock it out with a drug, you have something that you can actually do for patients. And what happened with that was that thyroid cancer, which I call the eternal Me Too disease, it's (laughs) never been one of the ones that has ever studied first, except if you're an endocrinologist or an oncologist like me that's decided to make it my thing. It's the Me Too disease, and a year later, don't you know, the same mutation was found in thyroid cancer, which is the whole reason at Penn we decided to go ahead and take the drug that we were working on already in the melanoma. And actually, I was working with Keith on the melanoma trial 
they opened it up to study the high blood pressure side effects of the drug. And I said, well, we got to get a thyroid cancer patient on there. And we did. And that was four and three quarter years ago that we actually did that. And this guy, his tumor shrunk 70%. And he is now almost five years out. And that just never had happened in thyroid cancer before, that anybody would get that kind of a long duration of a response. It's interesting because Keith was throwing all these numbers at me and pathways, and I just said, well, do you have any patients, you know, that really stand out? And he actually presented on the program a surgeon with widespread melanoma who, similar story, this patient was on the carboplatinum serafinib study, and I guess he's like six years out for your disease. Really right. amazing. Right. They are amazing. And it really got the attention of my endocrinology colleagues because here I am begging them. I'm like, come on, let me try, let me try. And they're like, we're not going to let you have any of our patients. You just make them sick. And so to have a patient who actually had taken a drug, tolerated it very well, and has this amazing quality of life, it was extremely exciting. And just out of curiosity, as I always love these little case vignettes, where did this patient have metastatic disease? Was he symptomatic from it? So he wasn't so symptomatic, but what he had was a very somewhat advanced presentation. His thyroid was taken out and it had all of the bad features I discussed, that it had lympho invasion and angio invasion. And he had some like over 20 or 30 lymph nodes were positive in his neck. I How mean, old was he? He was, I believe, about 50, in the late 40s, early 50s. And he had this widespread disease. And so it wasn't a surprise that three months later, things started showing up in his chest. So we already knew with him that we were dealing with something. And with relatively short time, the things in his chest were over a centimeter. So we knew that he had kind of galloping disease. So he wasn't one of these people that was going to hang around for 20 years with their disease. So did you actually look at his tumor in terms of you know analyzing for BRAF or any of the other? Don't you know? We did, actually. We did, because I actually have a lab, and that's my interest. It's the cancer and the genetics of all of this. And so we haven't analyzed it for RAS, but we didn't have to because, as it turns out, his tumor did have the BRAF mutation. And so what happened with him clinically? Well, he is working full-time and is with his family and doing great. So he had a couple of months of fatigue and what we call grade 1 toxicity. What exactly was he treated with in terms of the dose and schedule? Oh, so this is single agent. So unlike the melanoma patients, we just give single agent serafinib. And he took the 200-milligram tablets. He took two in the morning and two at night for a total of 800 milligrams a day. And he actually tolerated it so well, he didn't need the number of breaks and things that other patients sometimes need. And so is he still on treatment? He's still on treatment. The study has long since ended, and he is now getting the drug through another program called REACH, which is something that the company set up to allow him to still continue on the medication. That's interesting because Keith actually stopped therapy, I think, after a couple of years, and this man's in an unmaintained remission. Has that been something, or I guess this man really isn't really having any problems with the treatment? No, he isn't. I mean, I will say that, you know, occasionally when he's having a rough day or he's going to be doing something, he might miss his doses, so he kind of manages it. And I think that the question of whether or not we're going to be doing some discontinuation in these patients is probably the next thing we're going to look at, especially as we're developing these sort of long-term responders. We're trying to have to start figuring out who can we stop the medication. Now, it might be that the fellow that Keith talked about was part of a randomized discontinuation trial. So he might have been discontinued already as part of a trial and people felt comfortable because he had done well that way. 
In our case, we don't have that as a part of the trial, and so it's not clear whether we'll do that. But I think that's definitely something we're looking at. And that's something we're hearing a lot about with all kinds of biologics, bevacizumab, in a lot of situations. What do you do? How long do you keep it? Do you go through progression, this type of thing? I guess it's important from a fair balance point of view. I mean, you have to mention this one patient with a great response. Maybe we should draw out the tableau a little bit in terms of seraphin, and we'll get into the other agents. But what are the studies out there, and what are the data? There have been now, to date, three trials that have actually been published. There's one, ours, which we published at the interim analysis point because we had actually already shown that we had reached our endpoint, which is that we had significant response rate. So we'll start with serafinib, and then we'll talk about the exitinib data and also the AMG706 data. So the serafinib data basically shows that the best you could imagine getting was a 5% response rate with adriamycin, and actually that study from the 70s has been replicated in the last year, and with a smaller group of patients shown that that's a pretty accurate number. And so we wanted to show that we were going to be better than that, and we actually got a response rate that was around 27%. So that was huge compared to a 5%. Needless to say, we hit it by 30 patients. It must have been kind of interesting to watch that. It's pretty fun. I mean, and I, actually, I get, like it never happened before in a way. Yeah, and it's great because the patients come in and, you know, I don't know whether they're tearing because they have their lacrimal duct problems or whether <laughs> or whether they're tearing because they're afraid of the side effects. But I usually, after I sit there and tell them what we're going to do, they look like they're starting to cry. And I said, oh, no, no, don't worry. We're going to get through it. And they're like, I'm crying because it's the first time I've had hope in 30 years. I mean, I'm telling you, this is like my dream come true. As an oncologist, that you're not only treating patients, but you're making a difference where they've been sitting around waiting for a treatment, literally knowing their cancer was progressing CT scan after CT scan with nothing to do about it. So it's been a very dramatic thing, both in the clinic as well as looking at the numbers. All of them, the patients, we've had primarily differentiated thyroid cancer because that's what we see. Remember, the other ones are much more rare. And they've almost all gotten a response. Now, by resist criteria, maybe only 27% get below 30%, but that neglects the other two-thirds of the patient that are actually decreasing by 10, 15, 20%, who are getting just the same benefit from the drug. It just may not have shrunk quite as much. No, actually, I've got your waterfall plot. What does that show in terms of the percent? Well, if you look at the waterfall plot of our 30 patients, only two of them actually had progression. So you can imagine the waterfall plot is primarily 28 patients with all of the bars going down. And in my opinion, now the main question is, now that we know everybody goes down, how long do they go down for? Well, that's my other pet thing. I want to see waterfall plots of duration of response. Has that ever been done? Well, I haven't quite figured out how I would put in a duration of response into it. I think that the thing to do is to do it based on maybe just by time or something like that and make the y-axis time. And I think that's sort of a clever way of doing it. Well, you know, it gets back to your patient and Keith. You know, I don't, as a CME group, we don't know what, you know, how do we deal with it when you guys have cases out there that are very unusual yet really dramatic? And yet, you know, you see papers and docs are trying to figure out, you know, is this like just a little bit of benefit for everybody or a home run for a few people? Well, that's what I think the waterfall plot is so good at really demonstrating, okay, if you take 30 patients, this is what they do. And you can see it in a visual that you'll keep with you, you know, long after the paper's put back in your drawer kind of thing. Um, And and the other thing about it is you're not talking about an agent with life-threatening toxicities. For the most part, not. For the most part, we did have one patient who actually had a grade 5 toxicity. And in fact, I think it's the only example of a grade 5 toxicity with serafinib. What and happened there? It's totally not clear what happened with this patient, whether they had some genetic 
defect in their metabolizing genes that led to it or whatever, and we're trying to figure that out. But one out of many, many thousands but of patients. what happened? What was the actual toxicity? And the patient had liver toxicity. And Hepatic it, toxicity, interesting. Yeah, and progressed to fulminant hepatitis and liver failure. And she was actually not from this country, and she stayed in the hospital for about a week. When it became clear that no one was going to do anything except for hopefully let it reverse itself, she took off and went back to her home country. But we got you know news three months later that she had ultimately passed away due to her liver failure. Hmm, interesting. Was she responding? She had started to have some response, yes. That was another sad part, and she was also young. She's only 40. So it was really a tragedy in that way because as far as we could tell, she had no other background problems with her liver whatsoever. She wasn't on any other medication. So it really seems to be an anomaly, and it really haven't been able to figure out you know, why that happened to just one patient. What about other milder forms of hepatic toxicity? How often is that seen? Yeah, almost never. Interesting. So it's just really idiosyncratic reaction. Very idiosyncratic. In fact, the only other time I saw it, I had to laugh because the patient I was treating was actually a gastroenterologist. And of course, he would be the one who would come up with an elevated liver <laughs> function test. But what was interesting about him is he had a gallstone, and sure enough, he had to have it out. <laughs> wow. Interesting. <laughs> so, but that had been there and on and off an issue for him for years, long before he ever met me. So, but this gastroenterologist had advanced thyroid cancer? He did. Wow. What was he treated with? He was treated with a serafinib as well. So all the patients in our study have been treated with serafinib. There are two other studies. There was one that was run, Dr. Ezra Cohen did, out of Chicago, and that was on exitinib, and that data was published at the same time in the JCO as our paper. And that really shows a very similar response profile, that we really have a majority of patients responding. So that's two agents that have this good response profile. So can you talk a little bit more about exitinib in terms of mechanism of action, side effects, and toxicity? Right. So exitinib, unlike the serafinib, serafinib fits, will actually hit RET, which is another pathway, one of the other kinase pathways important in thyroid cancer. It also hits BRAF and it hits RAS as well as VEGFR2. Exitinib is primarily a VEGFR2 inhibitor. So that, again, sort of points to the thought that at least the initial responses are related primarily to VEGFR2. That's really what these two agents have in common. And actually, I'll say they share that same characteristic with AMG706, which is the molecule that was published in the New England Journal about a month ago. No, what about other data on serafinib? There was other data out of Ohio State, And they actually also had some good responders, and that was published in abstract form at ASCO, not in paper form so far. And there's been a lot of actually clinical data, not publishable, but a lot of anecdotal evidence from patients who've been treated in oncology offices that have also done very well. But in terms of actually presented or published data sets, is it just the Ohio State study and yours? Ohio State, which did the abstract, and then ours that did the paper. And where are we right now in terms of current trials looking at serafinib? Well, right now the company is trying to figure out what they can do as far as going forward to FDA approval. And there are going to be trials that will be set up probably multi-institutional all across the country that will allow patients to be treated with it, and they'll be able to gather the data that they'll need to go forward for a label for thyroid cancer. For serafinib, remember, it's a little different because this has already been FDA approved. So they're looking for a new indication as opposed to AMG706 or exitinib, which are actually brand new to the market. And so I'm not really sure what's been going on. I know that there was a trial that was open for a while with the exitinib group looking at it, and they were randomizing between exitinib and doxorubicin. And the problem is, is that no one for the last 20 years has wanted to give anybody adriamycin. 
And I would almost argue that they're almost ethical concerns at this point when you think about the fact that there are some mild toxicities, cardiotoxicities that can happen with serafinib and even sunitinib, which also is the fourth in the list, actually, that also probably has some activity, although a lot more toxicity and not easy to take. Those drugs have some cardiotoxicity, so the last thing I want to do is actually have a patient be given adriamycin, even if I'm going to know that I could treat them later with serafinib. You know, I guess usually in slowly developing disease and a very few patients, it must be really difficult to power any of these studies. You know, it's funny, but power has been not an issue if we are looking at the comparison with the 5% response rate of doxorubicin, which is the only FDA-approved drug. So it's funny, but... It's a rare disease. There are not a lot of patients, but we actually see we're up to about 48 patients, but we hit our primary endpoint at 30, a very small number. And the reason we could is that the effect was so great. Interesting. If you didn't have such a great effect, you'd need more patients. But we had such a significant difference that it wasn't that hard. I guess I was thinking, you know, moving forward in terms of starting to look at the next step, I don't know whether combinations are being considered, but just in terms of the whole issue of, say, going beyond these agents, that it might be sort of challenging. Yes, I think so. And in fact, once you establish, say, serafinib or one of these agents as the first-line therapy, it will be very, very difficult to move forward because improving on a 30% response rate is going to be tricky. But I think what you're going to have to do is look at maybe either – And duration of response is tricky, too, because the median duration of response is 18 months. So, you know, you're going to have to follow patients out years to really tell that there's a difference. So I think you're also going to start looking at quality of life and other aspects of these treatments, as well as whether or not you can actually get a complete response as opposed to just partial responses, which is all we've had so far. I mean, you may have said this, but what about side effects and toxicity with exitinib? The side effects are similar. They have, I believe, a little bit more of bone marrow toxicity. There's a little bit more, say, counts. But for the most part, they're very, very similar. So other than some hematologic toxicities, I think that they do quite well. If I remember, I mean, the lists are long, as you know. And when you put them side by side, I think that serafinib looks like it's a little bit better tolerated by numbers, but not a huge amount. And I think that part of that, again, goes back to the idea of the cells that you're actually lysing. I think some of these toxicity profiles aren't just related to the drug, but are related to the tumors. What about sunitinib? Sunitinib data was presented at ASCO this year, also by Dr. Cohen. And The problem with sunitinib is really getting a regimen that's manageable as far as toxicity goes. And really what they had studied and shown was that if you did, it's been tried both in the 37.5 milligram dose daily, and then it's been shown in the 50 milligram dose where you go four weeks on and two weeks off. And there was a large amount of toxicity, nausea, vomiting, and that gets back to this issue about quality of life. I think that if we take the other three drugs, exitinib and serafinib are probably in the number one spot with the lowest toxicity and the best responses. AMG 706 actually has some toxicity, maybe not quite as many responses, but compensates by having you know more patient in the stable disease area. And then sunitinib would probably be my fourth choice because it really is rougher. And I've had some patients who go on it, and it's a rougher drug to handle. Now, what about bevacizumab? Bevacizumab has not been used very much in thyroid cancer thus far. I think that that doesn't mean that there aren't oncologists who are playing with it or trying it, but I don't think that it's been a main one. I think it does have some activity, and I think that it may even have an ability to use it as an orphan drug, but the data have not been stellar. Those are all in the targeted therapies, but there actually are some other drugs that are not hitting the TKIs that have been studied in thyroid cancer. 
And some of them are anti-angiogenesis things like the thalidomide agents. So lanolidomide actually was also presented at ASCO. And it has what looks like some activity, although the investigators did not use resist criteria. They used some sort of criteria of their own that they made up. And so it's very hard to actually compare the results. And I suspect it actually has some activity, but it also comes with a pretty high price as far as toxicity goes. Yeah, lenalidomide seems to be showing up in a whole bunch of different places and really making me try to think about what's really going on there. Yeah, well, I think it's an anti-angiogenesis, and there has activity probably in multiple cancers. So you think more than immunologic? Yeah, yeah. I think it's probably the angiogenesis is more the main target in those cases. You mentioned these four agents. What about cytotoxic agents? Are there situations where you utilize that in advanced disease? Well, so because FDA has only approved adriamycin, it's still used in the community to some degree. And a lot of people who get that are usually the people who are now getting symptomatic. And that's an issue because now they're getting to the point where they have to do something. And unfortunately, often it's too late at that point. It's pretty advanced. You know, these patients can have hundreds of nodules in their lungs and not feel a thing. When they start feeling something, it's for one of two reasons. One, either their lung mass and their burden of disease in their lung has gotten so great, they've replaced over half of their lung tissue with tumor. Or sometimes they just get symptomatic because they have a tumor that's right on a bronchial and it actually has some bleeding. And so... In that case, it's maybe not so hard to treat them early on with some agents, but the people who have the large degree of tumor, it's a problem. And I will actually say that right now, the main thing we need to do is get these agents into phase threes, and we need to get everybody on trials, because the problem is is that if people are getting treated off-label, those trials will not be powered or will not get completed in a time that will actually get it to the point where it can just be given out in an oncologist's office. But hopefully that will happen in the next year or two, and then it will be just widespread use. But the thing that people will need to know when it does get on the market and people are giving it regularly is there's a window, I would say, as far as when you'd want to treat a patient. So I wouldn't necessarily treat somebody completely asymptomatic because if I think the fact that I might maintain a response for 18 months, I don't want to blow my wad on somebody who's going to be asymptomatic for 18 months. I want to actually get somebody who might start getting into trouble. And for that reason, I think there's a window. But at the same time, I've seen patients, if they come in too late, So their nodules are starting to get to two, three, four centimeters who don't necessarily respond as much. And by then, they might even run into trouble when you start serafinib because you can imagine if you have too much burden of disease in your lungs, you're already having some pulmonary compromise. And then you go ahead and lyse all those cells. You get sort of increased respiratory distress initially. And if the person is so tenuous that if you tilt them a little bit more in the bad direction, they'll do worse initially, you can imagine that there have been a couple of people who will get into trouble that way. And so I like to treat people when they're starting to get more nodules but aren't necessarily symptomatic. And I judge that a lot based on what I see on the CT scan. I look at all the scans on every single patient. I don't believe anything I say or read until I've actually seen the scan. I don't really feel like I know what I can expect from a patient. But I think eventually that's going to lead in our studies to criteria where we're going to say, okay, if you have so many nodules or so many size nodules, that we'll start coming up with guidelines that will say, when do you want to start a patient? Because that's going to be a real question to answer. So you're talking a lot about clinical and imaging issues. What about assays, tumor markers, circulating tumor cells, any predictors of prognosis? Not so much in thyroid cancer. I think that there have been a couple of studies to look for tumor circulating cells, and we even started to do one and have not actually completed the study. I mean, key 67? Yeah. 
Key 67 is actually a marker that's very, very good for something like melanoma. So in the tumors that have high turnover, their key 67 is large. There's been one study on key 67 in thyroid cancer that's actually kind of humorous to me because they were able to show a difference. But let me tell you that a thyroid cancer, we're talking mostly all now the differentiated epithelial ones, the majority of people that we'll see, their key 67 positivity is in the range of 2 to 3% before you treat them. What about anaplastic? Well, those key 67s might be higher. And there's going to have to be more studies as far as, you know, what we're going to do for anaplastics. But the majority of people, it's so low that you'd have to treat thousands of patients to see a difference in K67. So it's not really a good marker. Have these novel agents been used in anaplastic? They are. And in fact, we have some patients that have come in. It hasn't been as wonderful as I would hope. And I think that the people who are going to get response from these kinase agents when they're given alone are going to be the people who maybe have poorly differentiated that's becoming, it's sort of an evolving epithelial that's now poorly differentiated. The people who come in with frank anaplastic have not had as good a response. But it's very hard to say, one, because I'm talking about, you know, an N of four or five. And when you don't have that many patients, you can't say it's mostly anecdotal. And also the patients I have were in that category that I spoke about where people come in with such a high burden of disease that I think their pulmonary status gets worse before it gets better, and they just were not served by giving them serafinib. So I think that there are a few other agents that are currently in trials for anaplastic directly. A lot of those actually have some chemotherapy component to them, and it's probably going to be more, I think, the road that will end up going with the anaplastics, hit them both with cytotoxics and combine them with the targeted agents.